0: Welcome to the Winsome Conviction Podcast. My name is Rick Langer and I'm a professor at Biola University and also the co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project with my friend, Tim
1: Muehlhoff. It's great to be back, Rick. Um, Rick, we have a returning guest. That's wonderful. We do not often have, they usually run our guests (laughs) once they're on the show, but we have a returning guest. um, Prashan DeVisser was so intriguing of talking about how he's trying to take um, Sri Lanka and actually get to the young generation.
0: And make a difference. And make a difference. make the young generation a new generation. And it was just fascinating. It was
1: 1.5 million people going through the program. We encourage you to go back to listen to that one. But then we thought it might be really nice to have him talk specifically to the American context. But let me give you a quick introduction. Prashan is founder of Global Unites, an organization that aims to inspire, connect, and equip youth to transform global societies through movements promoting nonviolence and reconciliation. He's a 2015 graduate of the Kroc Institute's Master in International Peace Studies Programs. He's been featured on NBC, BBC, uh, for his innovative peace-building approach, and I thought this was interesting, Rick. Recently he received the Points of Light award from the Queen of England for his exemplary volunteer service to his nation. So we check our emails daily <laughs> to see what we're getting and so far we've not gotten anything. But we do have for Sean back for a second thing. Hey, that's re- can we just for a second talk about that? What what an honor to receive that award. What 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 was your um Reaction yeah, tell us to about receiving it. that. We want to live vicariously <laughs> yeah, <freely>. right. <laughs>
2: uh, we've been working in Sri Lanka for 15 years, and then these other, uh, Afghanistan, Congo, all these other 13 countries for another seven years. Uh, we're never doing it with looking for opportunities to get recognized and random. We didn't even know people were watching. Uh, but we received a call from the British High Commission in Sri Lanka and said, we were honored to announce to you that we, we received this. And it's done amazing because it, that kind of creates more credibility sure. for us to continue sure. the yeah. work, uh, to go to uh, even the governments and donor organizations and others and saying, you know, what we do has been monitored and vetted and uh, celebrated by these. And they really we were touched when they gave us the narrative of why mm. uh, they were recognizing us, yeah. to understand this level of impact and this is how it's done. And we are, we, are, we appreciate that and want to encourage that. That was definitely an added uh, inspiration to keep going um, beyond our own conviction of we are going to do this that we feel called by God to do this work. Yeah, that's
1: great. We were debating whether to have you on again, and to be honest, it was the Points of Light Award <laughs> that so, tipped it over yeah, so to <laughs> let's let's have. <laughs> All right, back to reality. Okay, back to reality. <laughs> no, we're th- so we're so thrilled you join us again. Oh, thank you for having me.
0: So, Prashan, one of the things we'd love to have you do is talk a little bit about how you see things in the American context, because obviously most of our listeners uh, probably come from that. And I think as we, you have been educated here, you have an ongoing and very deep knowledge of our country in addition to all the things you've done in other places. And one of the things that often happens, you mentioned this even within Sri Lanka, is people kind of get in their ruts and ways of thinking and it's really helpful to suddenly confront someone from the opposite ethnic group, the north part of the island, south part of the island. the same thing happens when you cross country. So we would love to have you talk to us a little bit about how you see things unfolding in the United States and, you know, maybe, maybe some insights, some things that, we, that would be valuable for us to hear. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, thank you once again for having me and the opportunity to share on this. I'll go back to four, four, four points here. Uh, as I'm as an outsider looking to the states, I love your country, this is my second home. Uh, if I wasn't called to live and serve in Sri Lanka, I'll be here in a heartbeat and I, I would do anything to serve. And um, one thing I've seen is, first of all, a theological understanding of the importance of us being peace builders, making peace in our societies, seems to be lacking. Um, on the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God.
0: Well, that's a
2: pretty intense <laughs> note. Children of God, peacemakers. Yeah. He said a whole bunch of things about righteousness, about those who were persecuted, those who are in poverty, and all that. But he separated children of God for peacemakers. Now, all my life, I thought, well, I accepted Christ, and I am a child of God. But now this says peacemakers and children of God. So, do I need to be a peacemaker in order to solidify the fact that I am a child of God? Or do children of God by default engage in peacemaking? Mm-hmm. Regardless, it makes it very clear that peacemaking is not a Christian elective. It is core to who we are. Mm-hmm. And it's something we need to be doing. And I see that lacking in our teaching in the church and in, in society, in, in the U.S., that that needs to be taught. And it's not just an isolated statement Jesus said. In his final prayer before the cross, as he was praying for us, the disciples who will come to know the Lord because of the disciples' work. He says, Lord, may they be one, in John chapter 17, so that the world will know that I am your son. Mm. Just as you and I are one, so that the world will know that I am the Messiah. And the litmus test for the world to know if Jesus is Lord was the unity in our society, in our communities, Mm. in our church. He put a lot on that.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And so... The world's eyes are blinded to the truth of who Christ is and to the gospel because Satan hit us just there Mm. to divide us as much as we can, as much as he can, to create hatred, to create prejudice, to create a a desire to no longer engage, to move away. And the more we do that, the more the eyes get blinded. Mm. And as an outsider to the States, and I'm going and speaking in churches here, I say, you know, I believe millions will come to know Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah, they'll come to hear the good news if in the U.S. the Church can lead the way for true healing and reconciliation and come together.
1: Well, we're done. (laughs) Podcast over. (laughs) We are absolutely done. But, you know, in a way, I am totally not kidding in the fact that we can't gloss over that point. I mean, that is the weight that Jesus placed on that demands a, a response from us particularly the american church Uh, rick and i we did all of our education at secular universities um if you went to those universities and said hey we're just going to do a quick survey what word comes to mind when we say evangelical or conservative christians rick do you think peacemakers would show up in one of the top five six words that they would use for christians I mean, I think we're it's tragically a long way of people associating us with peacemaking.
0: Well, sorry, no, I don't think it would. I think far more tragic is if we were to go to uh, five evangelical churches and ask members of the church how they experienced their own church life, how often oh. would peace and unity come up? Yep. And I feel like in the course, so I've been part of evangelical churches for, well, for, for, for several years um, like forty-five or something, mm. Mm. and uh, I feel like in the last seven or eight years, the increase. There's always been conflict and things like that. That's just part of life. It's part of New Testament life, but in the last seven or eight years, there's been a special vitriol and disdain for people on the opposite side of controversies within the church, and it's easy to say it's just political. But as I look at it, I say, you know, it's creeped out of the politics. You begin to get addicted to the conflict, and suddenly you mm-hmm. find mm-hmm. us now fighting our internal ball- battles about do we build a building or not build a building, or what do we do with the youth minister, or whatever. The, the same acrimony seems to travel with it. So I'm really profoundly concerned about this. But, yeah, yeah. back to you, uh, Prashan, about some of these things.
2: Yeah, so for us, theologically, this, once again, is not an elective. Mm-hmm. This is very cool, and Jesus was very clear about it. There are many things that, in the Bible, we're trying to figure out what's the priority on this. Where is this fault? This there is no debate on it. But for some reason, it's fallen off the table. Maybe because we've run away, sort of far from it. That now, even putting it back on the table, makes us r- exposes how far away we've been. Yeah. And I think that needs to be a clear call to the church right now. So that's theologically number one. But number two is you start looking at your country's context. The polarization is not just, people always say poor. but let's look at the numbers here. Pew Research did a study uh, where they looked at elections and the 10 values that the Republicans and Democrats had from elections in the mid-90s and all the way up to 2016. The common ground that Republicans and Democrats and people from different backgrounds had has been widening over the years. And the the study clearly shows when it comes to 2016, it's like a chasm. Mm. But this was before the elections following that. And I haven't seen a study of that recently. But if you look, it's scary. And for us who work in countries with civil conflict and violence, when those numbers hit that level, Mm. that's danger signs for us. For us, we're like, because what happens is, they did the study and they asked the question, you know, do you know anybody who voted for President Obama for a second time? And most people are saying no. And do you know anybody who voted for President Bush for a second time? They said no. What it, re- what it shows is that they're segregated so much, they don't even know anybody oh. who voted yeah. that way. That's dangerous. Yeah. Because then what happens is, it's easy to dehumanize the other. Yeah. And you start... In fact, over 40% of Republicans saw Democrats as a threat to the nation's well-being. And the same amount of Democrats saw the Republicans as a threat to the nation's well-being, both ways. Mm-hmm. Now, until 9-11, when you used the word threat in your country, that was terrorism or violence against them. But now you see a threat to the nation's well-being. That's dangerous territory. Yeah. Yeah. That means you could have a few extremists within that community who say, all right, there's a threat and I'm going to neutralize that threat. I'm going to take matters to my own hands. Civil wars don't start because millions of people decide to take up arms. A few people decide to act on their hate, to be seen elevated in their own community and saying, I did something about Mm. it, cheer me on. Mm. And sometimes even before they do it, they start talking about it. And as they're talking about it, you have a lot in their community who won't challenge them and say, shut up. You can't talk like that's wrong they'll just empathize with them. Or they will try to yeah, kind of see saying things that I don't want to say, and you just let that go. But when you allow that to happen, that's when things go crazy. Mm-hmm. We've seen that in our countries. Mm-hmm. Our children have suffered in our countries. And the church, not only because it's our core of what we're supposed to be doing, but because of the crisis that's looming, has to do more to bridge.
1: And that's not a new observation. I, I mean, it's really insightful. We do have some American voices trying to make that exact same point, that the tone of our rhetoric is opening the door to actual physical violence. And so, what a great uh, perspective. And we have few voices that are trying to make the point as well, it just doesn't gain traction.
2: Yeah. And one of the reasons it doesn't is people don't know what's the first step, how do I even respond to this? Mm. And secondly, they're not convinced that they need to respond to yeah. it. They're like, eventually that group will disappear or we'll we'll need to dominate and get rid of them and we'll do what we can and assuming you can solve problems that way. There have been many countries who have tried that and it just doesn't work that way. But um, at the same time, I I teach a class on the theory and practice of peace building at Crozer Colgate Seminary um, every year with PhD students. And these are people who really are passionate about peace building, coming from different racial communities, different backgrounds. And um, I, I do this exercise where I ask them to write 10 people that they would invite to their son's or daughter's wedding. Hmm. So you're in a circle, right? So, and they write it down, and then I say, would you please highlight anybody who's from a different race to you? Would you highlight anybody who's from a different political leaning to you, a different socioeconomic class to you? I've been teaching the class for about eight years, and the intersection has been less than 1%. Yeah. But these are people who want to be peace building, amazingly gifted people. But the problem is because we don't have that core interaction. We don't have that ability to have that empathy and then, as a result, have the compassion to now respond to correcting things in our society mm. and building those crucial bridges right now. The church needs to do better. Still, 11 a.m. on Sunday, there's a statement yeah. they say the segregated nature in this church. That's not what the church is supposed to look like especially in a beautiful, glorious country like this, mm. why is the church still segregated? Why? And yes, we can have different styles of worship, all but given what's happening in the country, shouldn't the church be leading the way? Yeah. Shouldn't we be a prophetic voice? It, because everybody else in your country has tried to address this polarization. When you look at it, the media has tried to do what they can, but as a result, they've contributed to make it even worse. <laughs> they hope arts and entertainment have tried to depict stories and trying to educate people and all that. Has that brought reconciliation? Not yet. Yeah. Uh, hasn't. And then you look at the academia. They've been analyzing the problem over and over again. No solutions yet. Yep. And you look at people who are activists. Sometimes they end up contributing to a has chasm. Politicians, it's not in their interest to fix this problem. Like I mentioned yeah. in our previous podcast, having a base of people who don't question and lost their ability to critically think and just be loyal to you is a politician's dream. So politicians don't want to fix this on either side of the divide. Mm -hmm. So then it falls to the church. Will we respond? And that's a huge, not only because it's our theological understanding of our role, but even the crisis, this is what we need to do. And thirdly, because there's no one else doing it. We have to do it. We have to lead. We have to serve right now. Get over your side and saying, this is, I'm going to hold on to and start saying, Lord, how do I serve right now? Mm-hmm. What are you calling me to do? How do I build those bridges? How do I create that empathy? So I think that's a very important moment.
1: You know, the late, great Dallas Willard had an acronym, um, VIM, Vision, Intention, Means. And when I'm hearing you say, w- we need to reclaim the vision, Before we even get to the means, which is, okay, how do I practically do this? How do I practically serve as a peacemaker in Sri Lanka or the States? But what I'm hearing you say is we've lost the vision, the value of being a peacemaker and that that reflects us as being children of God. And what a great timely word Hmm. to us. Uh,
2: One thing I'm also seeing is like people, affluent societies that have become comfortable and look very glamorous and com- you know after a while the, their capacity their threshold for pain diminishes mm. and their, their capacity to be uncomfortable diminishes you work so hard for generations to get comfortable and then I'll do everything I can to get more comfortable whether it's physically whether it's emotionally whether it's intellectually you want to get comfortable but a society that's willing to be so comfortable sacrifices so much that they would now try to sweep away stuff that's inconvenient. They don't want to deal with it. And for the church, it's become the same. Where can I be comfortable? Oh, this theology fits with me. This society fits with me. I want that. This education institute, that fits with me. I just want that. What are you afraid of? Because if, if we get iron sharpens iron, go there, enter. And if you believe what you have is true and go and engage... Jesus did. He didn't stay comfortable. His most yeah. comfortable place would have been to just stick with the disciples and hide. He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the poorest of the poor. He goes to the tax collector's house. He goes to places where it's mm. not come, but he goes and he engages because he knows he was walking with truth mm. and love, grace and truth. He went into those places. Why are we not going? Light, if we truly believe that we're reflecting the light of Christ, he didn't call us to be the light of the church. He called us to be the light of the world. Mm. So then why are we still here? Go and engage in humility. Not with the triumphalist, I'm going to fix these people. No one wants to be fixed. But do life with people. Engage. The churches need to. And if the church does that, I was talking to a pastor from Ferguson. We were having these conversations. Mm. He's from an African-American community. And he said, Prashant, I believe if the church does not play a prophetic role, we'll end up become a pathetic church. Mm. Hmm. We have to respond How many more years are you gonna wait before the church awakens? You can't just theorize about it, have conversations about it and agree about it and just not about it. Each one of us has a responsibility right now to fulfill the final wishes wishes of Christ before the cross. Lord, may they be one. Mm. And I believe it's time, I believe it can be done and that's why I'm passionate about investing in young leaders here Mm. who wanna do it and that's through USA Unites. And any opportunity I receive when I come to this country, we, we were talking as global units, listen, do we want to get involved in America? It's very expensive to do anything in this country. <laughs> like we, we calculated just for us to do these conferences in Sri Lanka cost us more than the entire budget for Kenya for the whole year. Wow. Yeah? So it's a risk, and so do we need to get involved? But no, the US has done so much to try and be a blessing to the world. And I think because we're the body of Christ and we're equal members of the body, we have to give back to one another, and this is our way of serving, and I'm really looking forward to it. I know it's an uphill battle, but I do believe that we are in the wishes of God and in his purposes and in being obedient to him.
0: So Prashan, you've talked to us a little bit about the uh, the, the theological underpinnings of the need to, to do this kind of work. You've talked about the crisis and, and therefore the need to respond. Where do you begin? Uh, talk to us a little bit about that part of it.
2: Yeah. So once you have the theology, you you understand the crisis, and then you see the opportunity and the role that the church has to play. Then how? And for me, over the years in all these countries when I've been working, young people are the way. Hmm. Sometimes you've been so jaded as a generation or the older generation, it's difficult to begin. I'm not saying it's a lost cause, but that's not a good place to start. You know, it's how do you go back? to a generation that have sunk their feet deep in a certain perspective and a certain way of looking at things and yeah. say, let's change yeah. things now. It's hard. Uh, after a certain age, it's even hard to learn new things. Like you know, Even technology is challenging, and it, all of us fall to that eventually. Right? But now an ideological way of looking at things differently and engaging differently, that's just asking for too much. So not that it's impossible, but I don't start there. Yeah. We start young.
0: Yeah.
2: And in all of our countries, as young as eight-year-olds, As young as five year olds, you know, and then all the way up to maybe 30, 35, Mm. to have different ways of engaging those generations, saying, Would you lead? Would you serve? A country needs you to. Not only because that's the best place of success, and that could trickle up to the generations where there is that inspiration, saying, Wow, our kids showed the way. We've been talking about this for decades, but they're showing us something different. But at the same time, it's you're taking away a more deadlier weapon of. When these societies get so polarized, they start, and if they are about to become violent, they're going to recruit from young. Mm -hmm. And you need to go ahead and quickly vaccinate them soon so that they have the ability to be immune to that virus that will go in there. Because what's happening now is, talk about uh, affluent societies having a low threshold for pain. Your younger generation has an even lesser threshold for pain. Mm. They cancel culture out all the time. They tap out before things get hard. And when you tap out so often, some of them are so frustrated they want to do something about it and considering violence is possible for them. And some will just walk away, some will walk away and want to do something about it and they'll embrace violence. So you start recruiting from the very base that could lead to a cycle of violence. And that's, so it's the best place to win, but it's also a precaution to ensure that they will not be uh, recruited. Because I'm telling you right now, we're, we're following stats in the US country. Google searches in certain parts of the country. What are young people following? Who are they listening to? It's a little scary. There are groups that are recruiting your young people online today for extremism, for prejudice, for violence. It's happening across this country. There has been an emergence of certain extremist racist groups uh, in this country in numbers that are scary. And they're not recruiting 50-year-olds, but they're recruiting 16-year-olds and 15-year-olds. And so we need to go to that base and ensure that we're recruiting and creating a vaccine there. So that's, that's the fourth stage.
1: Um, as we wrap up, what would be a word... To those of us in the 50s, 60s range, uh, how should we seek to encourage perhaps a young peacemaker? Mm-hmm. Uh, I hear this a lot where a lot of young people
2: say, I'm so frustrated and I want to do something and I want to engage. And, and when they do say that and they want to build bridges, one of the best things we can do is, first of all, encourage them for their boldness to want to do something. And this is not easy terrain. It's painful to engage mm. in this kind of climate. You end up, especially if you're the bridge builder. I always tell people: be ready. To people will have to walk over you to get to the other side, uh. and that's going to be painful. <laughs> yeah. And don't quit. Stick there. So they need all the affirmation and the encouragement they can get. They need the support. Like this is not easy. Uh, you know, cheap things to do. You need to do, engaging with it. They need resources. They need investment. They need encouragement. And sometimes to have the humility to say, maybe you don't get fully what they're doing, but know that as a generation, your outcome hasn't been what you wanted. So maybe there is a new (laughs) way. And give them that support. Give them that encouragement. Maybe you don't fully get it, but you know their heart. You know their desire. Give them that support. And if they are frustrated, encourage them, saying, don't try to do it the way we did it. Try something. Mm. You engage maybe God will be, be you know, because I heard this quote they're saying don't be too soon to tell a generation it's impossible because maybe God was waiting for that generation to be the generation that would do it Yeah, and so don't give them all your failure and your frustration and say it's not going to work hope and pray that that's their generation and give them that
1: encouragement what a great final word
0: yeah and I Tim you mentioned you know for people in 50s 60s it's interesting as you're talking about this there's really two whole older generations there's the 50s 60s there's also the 30s and 40s who are having kids I was thinking of the age you're talking about where eight-year-olds 15 year olds whatever and I was like, oh these are people whose kids are in grade school, junior high high school and parents are often really, really fearful about doing things that would cross bridges And so you're calling that sense to say be, be you know feel free to check out the bridge that it won't collapse or whatever that yeah. it isn't dangerous or something but to be able to say yeah we, we have to be able to cross. Some of these these divides, and yeah. and you parents are going to be pivotal people for yeah. that.
2: Mhm. very good point, especially for young parents, is ensure your children are exposed to diversity, exposed to different thoughts, and give them their core at the house. Do parenting well, mm. and then set them free to engage. Make sure that yeah. they have an understanding, because then that will help them grow with a deeper faith. We have not. That's one of the beauties of being Christian. For me, growing up in a very secular well a multi-religious nation. My parents taught us the fundamentals of our faith. They modeled it to us. They created a safe and uh, thriving family. And then they told us to go. They never forced their, and we were able to go and explore. We saw the Buddhist societies, the Mm. Muslim societies, Hindu societies. They were so convinced about their faith that they were not insecure about it. They let us go. And we came back stronger in our faith. And American households and parents, I really need to encourage, let them go but make sure you do your parenting at house because they're going to be the generation as a result will be better equipped to serve at this crisis.
0: Well, thank you so much for Sean. It's been absolutely wonderful to have you Uh, joining us again. Thanks for all your work and may God continue to bless in, in what you're doing there. Thank you. And I would like to invite all of our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we encourage you to subscribe and from Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. We're there. Also, check out the winsomeconviction.com website. And we appreciate your continued support as we just seek to engage a world that desperately needs to find ways to build bridges and build peace rather than wage war and, and espouse animosity, divisiveness that often leads to the destruction of the communities in which we live. So thanks for joining us.